It's good to be with you today. I've entitled my message, Who Are You Wearing? Who Are You Wearing? And I'm going to be reading from Judges chapter 6, 1 to 16, and then verse 34, and then from the Gospel of Luke. So, Judges 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites as if they were but one man. And then verse 34, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizarites to follow him. And then in Luke 24, verse 49. 
I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. My wife, uh, Peg, and I live around Nashville, Tennessee, Music City, USA. And so we are the home for the Country Music Awards, but there is also the American Music Awards, the Dove Awards, the Golden Globe Awards, the Academy Awards, and a number of other award shows on TV, and they're all big news events. And they roll out the red carpet, and actors and actresses and music artists stand on the red carpet, and they pose for pictures, and they get interviewed, and inevitably someone will ask the actresses, especially, who are you wearing? They want to know who designed their gowns. They're all wearing these gowns and clothing that are specially designed specifically for them, and they fit perfectly. I checked, and this afternoon, I'm wearing Fruit of the Loom. <laughs> so I want to talk this afternoon about some people in the Bible who wore designer clothing and how you can get some designer clothing for yourself. The story of Gideon in Judges 6 is one of my favorite Old Testament stories. Israel was at a low point. They were spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally, and economically bankrupt. An enemy nation called the Midianites had come in like a swarm of locusts, 135,000 strong, and forced all the people who lived in Israel to move into caves. This was a spiritual warfare situation, with 135,000 Midianites oppressing the people of God. They were living in caves, they were eking out survival, and we find Gideon initially down in the bottom of a wine press, threshing, threshing grain instead of out in the open where the wind could blow the chaff out. He was hiding, he was afraid that if he was seen, the Midianites would kill him and take his wheat. When things get bad, God looks for a person to use. And God will often use the most unlikely people. That's what the story of Gideon is about, how God turns nobodies into somebodies. Gideon was a very timid person. He was scared to death. He had all kinds of insecurities and feelings of inadequacy and self-doubt, and psychologists today would probably say he had an inferiority complex. When the story opens, we find him hiding out. Judges 6.11 says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak tree in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, who was his father. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So out of fear, Gideon had climbed down into the wine press and he's threshing grain to eke out a little bit of wheat to make some bread for his family that's living in a cave in dark and desperate times when everyone has lost hope. 
They're helpless, they're driven to despair. And an angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Do you get the irony in that? This guy is afraid of his own shadow. And the angel says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Bible says without a vision, people perish. And God affirmed Gideon. He said, you are a mighty warrior. And at the time, Gideon was anything but a mighty warrior. Anyone could see he was no courageous leader. Nothing could be further from Gideon's image of himself than to be called a mighty warrior. I'm sure Gideon would have said, hey, you got this wrong. Don't you mean Gideon the chicken-hearted? But God was looking at Gideon's potential, not at what he was at the time. Notice Gideon's reaction in verse 13. But Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that the fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hands of the Midianites. Gideon was saying, God, we, we know about the mighty signs and wonders that you did in the past, but we don't see them now. We know our history, but we need that to happen again. We need to see those signs and wonders again. The Midianites are running things around here now. Did you know that the Methodists were once familiar with and known for signs and wonders and the power of God? They're familiar with manifestations of the presence of God. Many people believed that Methodists could work miracles. Why was that? Because Methodists worked miracles. <laughs> if you read John Wesley's writings, you find that he believed in spiritual warfare, miraculous healing, resting in the spirit, holy laughter, speaking in tongues, the gift of prophecy, visions and dreams, angelic encounters and miracles. He even raised a man from the dead on Christmas Day. Because of Wesley's beliefs and the things that happened in Wesley's meetings, the Methodists were branded with that derogatory term, enthusiasts. But these same manifestations were seen in the ministries of George Whitfield and Francis Asbury, but they went beyond even those ministries of the Methodist big guns to ordinary Methodist preachers and Methodist lay people as well. Back to Gideon. When the angel of the Lord addressed Gideon as a mighty man of valor, Gideon started making excuses. In verse 15, he said, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. In the first place, Gideon says, you've got the wrong village, God. Gideon was born in Ophrah, not Oprah. <laughs> Ophrah, 
Ophrah is a little tiny village. It, in Hebrew, it means the place of dustiness. Doesn't that sound like a great place of potential to launch a national military campaign? It sounds more like conditions under your bed or something like that. The place of dustiness. Gideon said, you've got the wrong location, God. Nothing good can come from First United Methodist Church of Dustiness. On top of that, he says, you've got the wrong family. We're the poorest family in my entire tribe. We've got no financial backing. We're weak. How could I launch a campaign against 135,000 enemy soldiers? And on top of that, you've got the wrong guy in the family. Even if you did pick my family, I'm the youngest kid in the family. I'm the runt. The fact is, God often chooses and uses the most unlikely person. The youngest guy of the poorest family in the most unknown dry and dusty town sitting at the bottom of a well. God says, you are a mighty man of valor. God chooses someone and then makes them into the person he wants them to be. Many miss, people miss God's plan for their life because they just can't see themselves in that role. They can't see themselves as a leader, as doing something significant for God. I could never do that. Who, me? I'm just a Methodist sitting in a pew. But notice God's response in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? The Lord answered, I will be with you. You will strike down the Midianites as if they were but one man. He said, go with what you have, and I'll go with you. It'll be a cinch. Not all of us are called to the spectacular, but we're all called to walk in the supernatural because we're called to walk with a supernatural God. How many of you know that it's better to be an anointed amateur than an unanointed professional? Then in Judges 6.34, the NIV says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now remember, this is the Old Testament. We read a number of places where the Spirit of God came to rest upon an Old Testament figure and enabled them to do something that they couldn't do on their own. But the language here in Judges 6.34 is pretty neat. It literally says, the spirit clothed himself with Gideon. The spirit clothed himself with Gideon. In the New Testament, we're familiar with language that says we'll be clothed with power from on high. But here in the Old Testament, in Judges, the Holy Spirit put on Gideon like a suit of clothes. Gideon is the clothing 
in which God was going to appear. Gideon got designer clothes with a capital D. He got clothes from his designer. But in this case, the designer was going to wear Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Gideon. The glory of God, the manifest presence of God, moved within Gideon's body. God and Gideon, one plus God equals a majority. You'll remember in the story that Gideon started out with 32,000 volunteers to fight the 135,000 Midianites. That would be about four to one odds. But God said that was too many because then the Israelites might think that they delivered themselves by their own craftiness or wisdom or something like that. So Gideon told the men that anyone who was afraid could go back home and 22,000 gratefully volunteered to leave. And so that left Gideon with 10,000 left. And that's 13 or 14 to 1 odds. But that still wasn't good enough. They still could think they did it. And so God said um, that Gideon should put them through the drinking water at the stream test, and he sent another 9,700 home, leaving him with 300 men to face 135,000 Midianites. That's 450 to 1 odds. Those are good God odds. Those are good God odds. And the book of Judges tells us that God told Gideon that his 300 soldiers were to be armed with a clay pot, a torch, and a horn. And I wonder if Gideon had told the 300 that they were going to face an army of 135,000 with a clay pot, a torch, and a horn, and if anyone who was scared now could leave, if he'd have anyone left. But you know what? Even if the 300 left, the Midianites didn't have a chance. Not when they were facing God clothed with Gideon. Not facing God clothed with Gideon. Remember that God said to Gideon, I will be with you. And you, Gideon, you, not you and the 300, you will strike down all the Midianites together. The Midianites had no chance. Remember Paul's words to the Ephesians, I want you to know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. And I have to ask myself, what am I attempting to do that will surely fail unless God shows up? And what is my church doing that will surely fail unless God shows up? A.W. Tozer is supposed to have said that if you look at the book of Acts and look at the different things that happened there, 95% of the things that happened in the book of Acts happened because of the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, but 
if you look at our churches today, and God was to withdraw his Holy Spirit from the world today, 95% of what we do in the church would continue on unabated. In Ephesians 3.20, Paul tells us that God's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's in, at work in us. But it seems that most of the time we only ask for what we can imagine based on the resources we see before us, not the immeasurably more that God can do. You know how the story of Gideon ends. The Holy Spirit clothed with Gideon, led 300 people in a great victory, and the people of God were released from the oppression of the Midianites. God used Gideon. Gideon was a nobody who God made into a somebody by the Holy Spirit. He was wearing designer clothes. Actually, his designer was wearing him. So in Judges 8.28, we read that thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace 40 years. And I'm sure that Gideon had a personal revival, moving from hiding in a wine press to becoming the hero of the nation through a dramatic encounter with an angel and the Holy Spirit. And I suppose that the people of Israel had something of a revival, knowing that it was God, not 300 men, who delivered them from an army of 135,000 Midianites. So the Israelites had peace for 40 years, which is a good thing. But here's the thing. There's no record of Gideon ever having an experience with the Holy Spirit like that again in his lifetime. The Holy Spirit came upon Gideon and enabled him to accomplish the task that God set before him by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit left him. That was the common experience of people in the Old Testament for Gideon, for Samson, for Saul, for the prophets, for so many others. But you know, that's where many Christians live today, settling for an Old Testament visitation of the Holy Spirit rather than a New Testament habitation of the Holy Spirit. Charles Wesley wrote, Oh, that the Comforter would come, nor visit as a transient guest, but fix in me his constant home and take possession of my breast and fix in me his loved abode, the temple of indwelling God. But isn't that often our cry for revival? Lord, touch me. Lord, revive me. Holy Spirit, revive my church. And what we tend to mean is do something tangible, do something dramatic. Cause an event to happen in my life or in my church that we'll remember forever. We're asking for a visitation of God. But a visitation is an Old Testament model. Gideon won a battle clothed with God for a day. But Paul tells us that we're in a spiritual war every day. 
There's a whole host of spiritual forces of wickedness arrayed against us every day, and a visitation of the Holy Spirit is not enough for an everyday war. Things were to be different for people living after the New Testament. In John 14, 17, Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit in saying, You know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. In the New Testament, we as believers are to become a habitation of the Holy Spirit, a place where the Holy Spirit dwells and flows like a never-ending river. In John 7, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And in verses 37 to 39, it says, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And John the Gospel writer comments, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Do you know that you have more Holy Spirit power available to you than any believer in the Old Testament times? You have a never-ending river of Holy Spirit available to you. Furthermore, you can get your own set of designer with a capital D clothes. At the end of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, uh, verse 49, after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples and tells them, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Of course, that promise of the Father of clothing with power from on high came at Pentecost. But you know, a lot of Christians get stuck between Easter and Pentecost. If you look at the ends of the Gospels in the book of Acts, they don't tell any stories of the believers doing any signs or wonders between Easter and Pentecost. They were happy. They'd seen the risen Jesus. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Jesus appeared to 500 people at once during this time. They walked with him. They talked with him. They touched him. They even ate with him. Their sins were forgiven because he atoned for their sins on the cross and rose again from the grave. So if they died, they'd be going to heaven, but they still had no power to advance the kingdom of God. The resurrection was important because if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then everything that went before that didn't matter. Not Advent, not Christmas, not Holy Thursday, not Good Friday. But at the same time, the early church recognized that the resurrection was not enough by itself. Right before the ascension, the resurrected Jesus himself told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. He was talking about the Holy Spirit in language similar to the Gideon story. But on the day of Pentecost, not just one person, 
but all the disciples would be clothed with power from on high. Everyone got the opportunity to wear designer clothes designed by the Father in heaven. And it wouldn't be a one-day experience, not a visitation of the Holy Spirit, but a habitation of the Holy Spirit, an unlimited experience. People would be living life in the Spirit. They would be living naturally supernatural. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 12. I tell you the truth, Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Do you think that Jesus meant to include Methodists in that anyone who has faith in me? Do you think he meant that UTS students would do what he'd been doing? In John 16, 7, he tells his disciples that it's to their advantage that he leaves them so that the Holy Spirit will come to them. The power that Jesus passed to his disciples didn't arrive until the day of Pentecost, but when it did, it came to stay. And it provides the basis for spirit-filled living, for doing the works of the Father through the power of the Spirit, just like Jesus did. Now we can not just experience revival, we can be revival wherever we go. Remember how Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus wasn't just saying that we would get power to witness. He was saying we would get power that will witness. The power will do the witnessing. And all through the book of Acts, we read about the power of God witnessing through the believers. The apostles did indeed continue to do the works of Jesus, even when he was no longer physically present with them. Acts 2.43 says, Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Acts 5.12 says, The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. We read of Peter and John and Paul doing miracles. In Acts 4, Peter and John heal the crippled man at the entrance to the temple, and he goes walking and leaping and praising God. And in Acts 4.13, we read that the religious leaders were astonished that Peter and John were unschooled, ordinary men. They hadn't gotten their degrees from UTS yet. <laughs> yet the leaders acknowledged that Peter and John did an, an outstanding miracle that no one could deny. They were like Gideon, nobodies who God made into somebodies by the power of the Holy Spirit. They were wearing clothes of power provided by their designer. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are ministering in Lystra, and Paul healed a man who was crippled in his feet. The man jumped up and began to walk. And when the people saw what happened, they shouted, the gods have come down to us in human form. 
And they called Barnabas the Greek god Zeus. And Paul they called the Greek god Hermes. Why did Paul and Barnabas get called gods? Because they were wearing their designer's clothes of power. And they were doing the kinds of things that gods do. No one needed to ask them the red carpet question. Who are you wearing? They could already see that they were wearing God. And in Acts 16, we have the story of Paul and Silas in prison. And verse 25 says that around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. So there were Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns to God. And they didn't have a worship band or smoke machines or pyrotechnics or fancy lighting systems or video projection systems. They didn't have a choir and they didn't have an organ. They didn't have hymnals. They didn't have banners or flags or dancers. They didn't have a children's program for their kids. They didn't have a youth program for their teenagers. They didn't have any of the things that we so often feel that we need for us to come into the presence of God. They didn't have to come into the presence of God because they brought the presence of God with them into the prison. They were wearing designer clothing. They were clothed with power from their designer and miraculous signs followed. A great earthquake broke up the place. They were revival where they were, even in prison. You know, there are Methodists today who wear designer clothes of power. Several years ago, Peg and I got to take an Aldersgate Renewal Ministry uh, Lord Teaches to Pray event to Bratnagar, Nepal, a small, dusty village near the border with India. And while at the United Methodist Church there, Yes, at the United Methodist Church there. We heard the testimony of a former Hindu woman who said that she had had a child who was filled with demons. And she prayed to her Hindu gods and she made sacrifices but got no deliverance. And then she said, some ladies, not the pastor, some ladies from the United Methodist Church came and prayed for my child. And he was delivered. And she became a believer and she became a United Methodist. Another woman in that same village was preparing to become a Buddhist priest. And she became very ill and she prayed to Buddha and she did her Buddhist rituals, but she just got sicker. And then the ladies from the United Methodist Church came and prayed for her, and she was healed. And she left Buddhism and began the path to become a United Methodist minister instead of a Buddhist priest. There, in that poor, dry, and dusty place, a place like Ophrah, where Gideon was born, 
Some United Methodist ladies were wearing designer clothing with a capital D. And I have personal knowledge of some Methodist UTS students in Philadelphia and in Hasifi, Brazil, and in other places who wear the clothes of their designer. This Christmas season, you can get some of that designer clothing for yourself. It's free. <laughs> Don't look on Amazon. <laughs> But you can get your own. You can be clothed with designer clothes of power from on high and put them on and be a blessing to other people. Amen.